Okay, good morning, church. All right, first things first. Now, some of you have heard that church has a lot of rules, and here at Bentonville, we try not to focus on any unnecessary rules. I mean, there's a couple big ones. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Yeah, love your neighbors yourself. Amen? Okay, and other than that, you know, there's some things that God gives for life and living, but we try not to make too many rules. So here, here we go. Now, today I've got four rules for you. All right, four rules. But just so you know, this isn't forever. This is just for right now, okay? Just four rules for right now. So we've got some guys that are going to come give you a little gift. they got a little present for you, so you guys go ahead and start giving out our little present. And here's your four rules. I'll tell you while these guys are giving them out. Uh, and so you can repeat these after me. Rule one is take, take no more than one. So you say that, take no more than one. Okay, rule number two, though, is very closely related to that. It's take no less than one. So take no less than one. Okay. And then rule number three is don't open it. So let me hear you say that. Say, don't open it. Don't open it. And rule number four is don't lose it. Okay, so now here's the thing. I trust you guys a lot, <laughs> but I know four rules is a lot to keep track of. So we're going to repeat them just one more time, and then, uh, and then I'm going to leave that up to you. And it's all like... The success of this is completely up to you. Okay, so here we go. So take no more than one. Take no less than one. Don't open it. Don't lose it. Okay, now we're going to have a new covenant later in this lesson where we're going to change some of those rules. But for now, that's what we're living under. All right. Uh, Good luck to all of you. And to me. Last week, we enjoyed Easter Sunday, and we started a series called Greater Love, and we're going to pick up there today, and we're going to continue this series through the month of April, and God's love is the greatest power in the whole universe, so whatever you can think of, we could put God's love as greater than over the thing you can think of. God's love was shown to us because Christ died for us, as Tim read this morning, while we were still sinners. We weren't good people, we weren't righteous people, we weren't even friendly towards God, and God God sent Christ to die for us. So this is his greater love. And this month we want to look at a few specific things, and I hope that they're practical. Some things that God's love is greater than in our lives, that we need to remember, be reminded that his love is greater than these things, and that we maybe need to work out a little bit as we follow him in faith, and as we follow the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, as we obey Christ, as we live this life following God. And today, we're going to talk about how God's love is greater than our pain, than our hurt. Now, I don't want you to get today confused with next week, okay? Because next week, we're going to talk about how God's love is greater than our irritation or our frustration, right? Now, in the moment right now, you could have pain in the moment, okay? But what I'm really talking about today is pain that's in the past buried pain, deep down inside something that you've done your best not to have to deal with anymore or that you think is resolved, something that is maybe from so long ago uh, that this was in your childhood and and decades have passed and it's still there. Uh, Maybe this is something that's just a little while ago, something that happened right before you came to church this morning. I don't care how old the pain is, but simply I want you thinking about something from your past, pain and hurt. And next week we'll talk about stuff that's going on right now in the moment, when things happen in the moment and we feel this, you know, this rush or this uh, frustration in the moment. So let's look at a passage of Scripture together uh, from the Exodus that we looked at in part last week 
about the Israelite nation in Egypt, in slavery, they're in pain and oppression in the moment, but they also have a pretty lengthy past at this point of hurt and pain and struggle that's been building up to the point that they've got these deeply buried things, these deeply buried frustrations, this deeply buried sense that God has left them, that they're struggling to bring back to the surface and to deal with. So let's read from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. It's just his title, not his first name. So in Egypt, they didn't call him king, they called him Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, the Lord said, he, the king, Pharaoh, will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So God, knowing the Israelites' pain and their suffering, has picked Moses. He's come to Moses. He found him in the wilderness. If you go back to chapter 4 and you read what happens there, you go back to chapter 3, you read what happens there, you'll see that God and Moses have had a pretty long conversation already where God showed up in a burning bush and he talked to Moses. The bush didn't burn up. It was a miracle. Moses approached it to say, I've got to see what this is. And then he and God have a talk about how God's going to set the Israelites free from slavery. Now, right after he sends Moses back to Egypt, uh, Moses walks into the palace of the king. I don't know if any of you have ever met a king. There's a few of them left in the world today. Uh, maybe you're more obsessed with the royals in England, right? Like the queen and then the, the princes and, all, and the girls that they've gotten married to or engaged to, and you follow all those stories. But I don't know if you've ever met a king in person. I haven't. But can you imagine walking into the palace of a powerful king, but also a king who's like a dictator? I mean, one whose sorcerers in his palace do dark magic. He worships pagan gods that do all kinds of uh, the, the sacrifices these pagan gods require in their imagination are all kinds of terrible things. And you walk into this palace of this man who's known to be evil, and he's got all of your relatives and all of your countrymen in slavery. And Moses walks into his palace and he says, this is what God wants you to do. Let the people go. Well, what's the king going to say? I mean, come on. He's got all of the armies and the soldiers. He's got the black magic, and you're one dude with a stick. So the king says, no way, and he laughs him out of the palace. And where you're picking up right now is the second time that God has come to Moses and says to him, this is what I'm going to do. But maybe right now Moses and the Israelites aren't really believing that a lot or feeling it a lot because they've got this buried event, this painful moment when he walked into the palace once and got laughed out of court. And then the king had made the slavery work for the Israelites even harder. Okay, so he just, he made their work outrageously hard. So here we are in verse 2. God also said this to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Now these were their forefathers, their patriarchs. Uh, For their nation, this might be like saying I came to... uh, 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 George Washington and revealed himself like this or whatever. Somebody who was very important from the past in your country. Maybe your great-grandfather, a relative. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. And that simply means as as El Shaddai. It's a generic word for God, El, and the word that means mighty or powerful, El Shaddai. So it's not his personal name. See, I showed up to them, to your forefathers, as God in the generic sense, as God Almighty, But by my my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh in the Hebrew, but by my name, 
Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they uh, resided, but only as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Moses might be saying, yes, I've heard all of this in chapter 3. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as a possession, because I am the Lord. And so with this great rousing speech, God says to Moses now for the second time, I'm going to see it done. I'm going to deliver the people out of Egypt. They're in chains of bondage, but I'm going to break the chains off of them, and I'm going to set them free, and they're going to go to a beautiful land. And here is how the Israelites respond to this message the second time God gives it. Moses spoke all of this to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Do you see their pain? They don't think they can trust the Lord anymore. Moses already went to the king's palace once. It made our lives worse. We've been suffering in slavery now for a long time. It's not gotten better at any point. It's only gotten worse. Now our parents... Our elderly parents are being forced to labor all day and walk around in the heat of the countryside and look for straw that they've got to harvest and cut with their own hands and bring all the way back to the brick-making sites. Our little kids, instead of being in school, are stomping around in the brick molds all day long, sweating, getting dehydrated. Our little children are malnourished. They're living in this abject poverty and slavery. And the last time you talked to the king... Things only got worse, and so their spirit has been broken by the pain that's buried inside and because of their harsh slavery. And this is a truth that's important for us to understand today. If you're following along in your bulletins on the back, we've got a place for you to take notes, and you could write this down along with anything else that the Lord puts on your heart this morning. But the truth about us is that as people, our past pain can break our spirits in the present. The thing that we felt like God didn't do or didn't come through years ago, and we think we've gotten better, and we think we've dealt with it a little bit, we think that that thing's been resolved, can sometimes come rushing back to the forefront. Or maybe in your life, you know it was never resolved at all. Maybe it has been there the whole time. There are some of us who live with a certain pain or hurt for decades, and it always is right underneath the surface. There are some of us that are surprised that at a certain glance or a chuckle from someone else, we can be transported back to the schoolroom in elementary school where all the other kids knew the inside joke. And we were the only one who didn't know. 
And all we wanted was to be included or, or to know what was going on. And the laughter seemed to be going on in 360 degrees all around us. And we realized that they're laughing because we don't know what they know. And one look from a business associate as a mature, you know, income-winning adult man or woman in society can sometimes take you all the way back to that place. And you might not want to admit it. You want to be seen as stronger and as tougher on the surface. But the truth is, whether you will admit it or not, whether you let anyone else know or know you that deeply or whether you hide it, there are certain people in the world who have that power over you. It may be a parent or a grandparent. It may be an uncle that always just was a little too rough in the way he joked with you or picked on you. It may be your sibling. I don't know. But there's somebody who has this power over you. The question isn't whether we have things from our past that hurt. The question is, can you identify it? Do you know what your bondage is? Do you know what your Egyptian slavery is? To borrow from last week, do you know what your pain is that mirrors Mary Magdalene at the tomb? Do you know the things that break you down on the inside? Are you aware of what the joke is that you've been left out of? Because right now, I bet some of you are thinking of it. I bet if I, if I made you, and I won't today, but if I made you sit for 60 or 90 seconds of silence and you thought and you prayed for a minute in front of God and you said, God, is there anything like this in my past? If there is anything like this buried, help me to think about it today so that I can deal with this with you. I bet in 60 seconds or 90 seconds, there would be a few things that would suddenly come to the surface that you remember from your past that you really don't like to think about. But can you identify it? Are you aware of it? You see, we live all of the time around people, our relatives, our coworkers, in the present. We make decisions and react to things that are going on, or we respond to things in the moment. Right? We can't respond out of the past. We don't live there anymore. The future is something we don't know, so we live here in the present. And we forget how much control these things from our past might have in how we respond in the moment. We sometimes feel it, though, even if you don't know it or identify it. There's a moment when somebody says one word. It might be your wife. It might be your husband. They use one phrase that your mother used. And suddenly, you feel your face get hot. And suddenly, you feel your insides just clench all up like that. You know, oh. And you say, and I don't even know why. I love this person. And the truth is, your brain is responding to something that's been hardwired in there from your experience. There's a part of your brain, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but it's called the amygdala. That's your fight, flight, or freeze response center in the brain. You know that? Why is it that sometimes you will reach down to pick something up in your yard and pull the hand back like that because you see the coils in the grass? What is it? Say it. It's a? No, it's a garden hose. <laughs> but your amygdala didn't have time to think about that. So in two milliseconds, the amygdala pulls your hand back and releases all kinds of chemicals throughout your body. 
Why is it that you can look at that garden hose on the ground for the next 60 seconds and you well know it's a garden hose? You've used one many times. In fact, it's what you were looking for. It's a garden hose. You know it. You put it there. And yet your heart is still racing and your blood is pumping and your spouse comes around the corner like, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, just give me a second. You know? Why is that? Because your rational brain takes 250 times longer to catch up with your amygdala. 500 milliseconds. And so we'll save some of that for next week. But the point is this. Why is it that in the moment when somebody says that word or just that echo of something traumatic from your past life that you can suddenly just enter into anger, enter into fear, enter into irritation? Why does it rush through your body so? Because this is how you learn to respond, to protect yourself in a former life that maybe you don't even want to claim now but it's still part of you. It's still part of the chemicals and the physical body that makes up who you are. And oh, God's not done with you in your body. He's not done with you in your chemicals. He's still working on you to rewire all of that, which is exactly why we're talking about it. It's not hopeless, but think about what this is like for the Israelites in their slavery. They're hardwired to say, do not do anything that would make this harder on us again. And was it, what is it like for Moses? Can Moses identify the thing that for him triggers this response, this fear, this paralysis? Does Moses know his weakness from his past well enough to surrender it to God? Look at what Moses says to God in Exodus 6, 10, and 12, the next few verses. So the Lord tells Moses, after that brilliant speech, that rousing speech, I, the Lord, will take care of you and deliver you. Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, And tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. But Lord, Moses objected, my own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I am such a clumsy speaker. Now what Moses has just done for us is he's opened up something. You know, Moses is this great leader. I mean, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, you know he's merely a few days here from leading the Israelites out of Egypt through an ocean that splits itself up by God's command and power into two walls of water and then crashes back in and kills all the Egyptian army. He is this close to being that guy, that leader. And in this moment, what he does for us is he opens up something from his past. Okay, I want you to break the rules that I gave you now. Uh, You've got one Band-Aid with you if you follow the rules, as I trust that you did. So now I want you to open it. I want you to open it and just put it on your hand or a finger, wherever you're comfortable. Just put it on somewhere. If any of you are bleeding at this moment and just critically needed a Band-Aid, you're welcome. <laughs> Most of you, though, this is just a, a little device to help you remember. And I want you to, if you thought of it already today, if you know the thing that God is bringing up from your past and it's coming to the surface this morning and you're thinking, oh, no. I did not want to come to church to encounter this thing from my past. Put that Band-Aid over it on your finger and just realize the first thing that God's asking you to do, what Moses does right here, just say what it is. You don't have to say it out loud to me, but just identify it. Just say to God in your prayers, God, it's this thing. I hate it. I hate that there's brokenness from my past that still is interrupting my present glory as one who is found in Jesus Christ. But I hate it. Here it is. Put the Band-Aid on. You know what it is. Now that's for you. It's not for me anymore. 
Here's two temptations when we face these things from our past. The first one is to ignore it. You see, if you don't put this Band-Aid on, if you don't think about it, if you don't actually process with Moses what is your thing, you're going to ignore it again. And you're very, very good at this, aren't you? You've lived for decades of your life ignoring this thing. The reason why you don't want the preacher to bring up this kind of thing on a Sunday morning is because you've become so talented at ignoring it. We like to pretend that these things do not have a hold on us anymore. Uh, A phrase from a well-known Disney movie, Hakuna Matata, means no worries. Now, what movie are we referring to? It's The Lion King, right? You could even probably, in fact, if I asked Kyle Queen this morning, he'd probably come up here and sing the song. He would. Hakuna Matata, for the rest of your days, right? It means no worries. Simba, this little lion meant to be the leader of his people, which are also lions, encounters just this terrible, life-changing, life-altering, hurtful moment when he sees his father die in front of him and he thinks that it's all his fault. You know, if you haven't watched the movie in a while and you don't remember this part, Scar, his evil uncle, has set the whole thing up to wound Simba, to kill uh, the, the father, Mufasa, but also to wound their family's lineage and heritage so that he can take over the kingdom. And little Simba sees it happen and he lives with this wound while well, he runs away with his friends, Timon and Pumbaa, and they sing Akuna Matata, no worries, let's run away from our problems. Let's bury it, right? Let's just put a bandaid up until there's a new skin on the surface and pretend there's not an infection underneath is what they teach him to live with. And the young Simba grows up into uh, um, junior high Simba. And then Rafiki, his old friend the monkey, comes for him. And he finds him living out this no worries life and pretending that he has no responsibility to his people that are oppressed in their own land, just like Moses pretended he had no responsibility to his people that were oppressed in a foreign land. You see, they didn't really come up with this story on their own. They just took the Exodus and they put animals over it. And then Rafiki's trying to talk Simba into going home and facing the old wounds. And Simba is like, I don't want to face the past. I don't want to deal with the past. Rafiki takes his stick and whacks him over the head with it. And Simba goes, what did you do that for? And Rafiki famously said, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. Simba responds, yeah, but it still hurts. And Rafiki, wise old monkey that he is, ah, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. And then Simba says, well, I know the first thing I'm going to do. And he takes the monkey's stick and throws it into the weeds. And then he runs off laughing. And the monkey's like, where are you going? And he says, I'm going back. And you see, this is what God's calling you to if you know the thing that's buried inside. There's going to be a moment in your life if you want to be as whole and as complete as God imagines that you can be, that you're going to have to face the thing. And you may have to face it several times. In fact, it may be something that never completely heals, but your healing and your strength derives from the place where now you and God are looking at it together and calling it what it is instead of ignoring it. The second thing that we often do is we exaggerate it. 
If we choose not to pretend that we were never hurt, we want to let everybody know how we were hurt. Every time we can. And so anytime I'm held responsible for anything at all, and I get called before the judge, oh, this is the way my mother raised me. It's because my father beat me. It's because of my, you know, drunk uncle and the way he treated us. No, this isn't me. Okay, so in the past, I had this boss, right? And on and on and on we go. Relocating our hurt and our blame in other people's choices, acting as if we're not responsible, but willing to tell everyone how oppressed we were, how harshly we were treated, with what chains of bondage these other people, you know, reined us in. We exaggerate it. We act as if it is the overarching narrative of our life that this pain happened to us. And God says, even though he knows your pain and Christ came to the world to show you that he would live through pain along with you and like you, that here you are with this story or this narrative of your pain and God says that is not the overarching story of your life. It is a chapter of a setback. It is not the epilogue. In Exodus 6, Moses responds to God again like this. When the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I'm the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. Moses argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it. I'm such a clumsy speaker. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? Now, you've already seen these verses, haven't you? You've already seen these verses, haven't you? Or have you? You saw verses that were about, you know, 10 verses before this where they had this conversation. In the book of Exodus, there's, there's an interruption that we skipped. The interruption is this genealogy of Moses and Aaron, his brother, who becomes the high priest in Israel. And it's their whole genealogy that shows how they came in charge and who their fathers were and who their grandfathers were, all the way back to this man Levi. And then who the sons of Aaron are all the way down to a man named Phinehas, who later becomes one of the great high priests in the nation of Israel. And this interruption is so that you will pay attention to the repetition that happens right before it and right after it. Why would God pick these two guys? Why not go find a David out there in the community who will willingly say, I'll take on the Pharaoh, give me five rocks. Why does he pick this guy who keeps saying, oh no, I'm a terrible public speaker. I just could never, I could just never do it. I would be mortified. You know, I'd stutter, whatever it might have been. Moses had some kind of speech impediment or a problem or a fear. Why does God keep asking him this? Look at how many times Moses has already rebuffed God. Over and over, he exaggerates his problem to where he thinks it's the reigning narrative of his life, the controlling factor. In chapter 311, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Chapter 4.1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me? Uh, you know, heads up, Moses. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe that an oppressed slave people has suddenly been visited by their God that's going to visit ten destructive plagues of power on the most powerful nation in the whole world, and you're going to walk out of here, you know, free. Of course they're not going to believe you. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord didn't really appear to you. Chapter 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. 
I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And right after that, in chapter 4, God had said to him, Moses, I want you to think about this. Think about it in the same kind of questions he uses when he comes to Job. When Job finally gets to the point that he thinks his suffering is the reigning narrative in his life. And he says, God, I want a trial with you. How could you do this to me? And God comes to Job and he says, finally, now I will question you. And you'll stand like a man and answer me. And he asked Moses, Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And to that, Moses bravely says, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) You see, over and over, this, this little thing from his life, and we don't know how it started. And I think, I think when Moses wrote down these stories and when whoever helped him edit them and compile them all put together the book of Exodus, I think that probably this was left out on purpose so that we would just have to realize that we don't know. There's a universal truth here that we live crippled sometimes by these things from our past until we give them to God, and yet it doesn't tell us what happened to Moses. It doesn't tell us if he was in school with all the other Egyptian school children one day and got laughed out of the room. It doesn't tell us whether he tried to give his first address to the Egyptian nation and just stuttered and stammered like the king in the king's speech. We just do not know how it happened. But it was painful enough, and his courage was broken enough by it, that he kept coming back to God and over-exaggerating that part of the story and saying to the God who made mouths and tongues, please, just send somebody else. And you see, our honesty about our pain opens a door for God's healing. The moment that you tell God what it is doesn't mean you're going to just be miraculously fixed forever and you will never, ever again have the amygdala response when somebody says that word. It doesn't mean that you're completely, biologically repatterned from your past, but it does mean that you could have a friend with you in it. You could have fellowship in it. You could be accompanied by the God who made your mind who made your mouth and your lips and who made your ears, who made your eyes, who allowed you to endure that trial in your life, allowed you to see that horrific thing, to hear that terrible thing, allowed you to see it, not so that you would live your rest of your life crippled by worry and anxiety, but so that you would have something to offer him and trust him that even though you feel fear and anxiety, he will not let you go alone. Amen, church? And so in Acts 7, Stephen, who is the first martyr in the Christian church, is able to say confidently about the same Moses who whines that way before God because he knows the rest of his story of where God takes him from that moment. You see, Moses walks back into Pharaoh's palace a second time with Aaron next to him, and this time God says, you're going to use some signs of power. This time you're not just talking, I'm showing. And he says, take your stick, throw it on the ground, it becomes a serpent, right? And put your hand in your vest and pull that out and it becomes leprous and pour water out on the ground and it becomes blood. And Moses starts to do some of these signs for Pharaoh and at first Pharaoh isn't totally impressed and then God brings out the big guns and he does these 10 plagues that answer directly some of the powers the gods of Egypt supposedly had. And over the course of the next chapters after this, God will show that even though Moses and Aaron are weak, I am strong. And because of that, Stephen's able to say this about Moses. 
Moses was educated on all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. Amen, church. See, the unbelievable story of our rescue is not only that God breaks our chains with supernatural power, but also that he works patiently with us through our bondage, our pain, and our perfectly normal natural problems. Whose version of your story are you going to believe? The one that you've repeated in your head for so long that it's become your pattern of thinking about who you are. Or the story of a God who says, I made every cell in your body and I put you there for a purpose and someday they can say words like this about your crippling pain and hurt. Oh yes, you may live in weakness, Christian, but God dwells in you with great strength. And so today we offer you an invitation as we always do to pray with our leaders to put on Christ in baptism and be filled with that Holy Spirit that he promises will be your strength and your guide. Why would you wait for that? Why wouldn't you want that? And if you as a Christian have been living with this thing for so long and today the band-aid represents it, will you leave here determined to confess or to pray or to do something with somebody that you trust so that someone can know that you know that God put you here for a purpose, to fill you not with your power but his. Let's stand and sing this song of invitation.